English faculty, Matthew, Matthew Reynolds. Um, and what I'm going to say, um, I suppose the points of contact with the kind of thing that, that Andrew has been um, talking about um, are firstly an interest in the way in which creative writing is writing, which is to say that it doesn't just tell you something that has to be, to, to be read, paid attention to the textual bit. Um, and the, the, the second thing I suppose I'm interested in that, that's, that's in contact with what you were talking about is the, um, is, is, I, was, I was very struck by the phrase you used of uh, the descriptive critic working on behalf of the film continuing its work, which is to say that description isn't just a matter of saying what's there, there's an element of imaginative entering in and imagining further as it were. Um, and I suppose the thing that kind of really uh, kind of tantalizes me is the question of where that imagining in um, becomes an imagining of something that's not really, where the continuing stops being a continuation and becomes something just kind of bust in and yeah. just added in. Um, and I think that's, that, that's quite, a, quite a kind of live, where the, where the critical, you know, there's an element of creativity inherent in criticism, but there must be a point where the creativity inherent in criticism stops having critical value anymore and becomes self-indulgent. And I suppose that's a kind of, yeah. that, that's, a, that's an, an issue in, in literary studies. I'm not sure whether it is yeah. in, in yes. film studies, but... Um, but that's, that, that's something that concerns me. I, I, I come to this, um, looking within, um, I, I discern three kind of sources of my um, in, interest in what we're talking about today. One is um, the experience of, of, of writing fiction and having it reviewed and discussed. I'm feeling quite strongly that what happens in that case isn't that people are talking about the thing that I've written, but the thing that I've written is being made over into a slightly different work in each case as it goes out into the world. So the element of collaboration and recreation inherent in reading and criticism has been sort of quite vividly and sometimes rather painfully brought home to me um, in, through, through that experience. Another um, sort of source um, is the work I've been doing on translation. I've been doing quite a lot of work on translation over the last few years. Um, and translation, a translation is in a sense an interpretation of the source text. There's a sense in which a translation is about the text that it's a translation of. But like what I was just saying about criticism, there's a necessary element of invention in translation too, a necessary element of kind of making something new. And indeed, um, I think particularly perhaps in the realm of, of, of poetic translation, and those of you, uh, we had a, a really thought-provoking seminar by Clive Scott, who's the uh, creator of the, the first text that's on my handout in, in, um, in, in Hillary Town. One of the things I, I, I sort of felt, I, I felt in relation to this kind of work, is that you, you want to translate, you imagine in, you really want vividly to capture the thing that most matters in the thing you're translating. But in that work of really wanting vividly to capture it, you're creating something, and then it becomes impossible. The more you imagine yourself in, the more you're imagining something new. Um, and so this version here, which is a translation of English into English translation of the other Thomas Cohen Edelstrop. What he's wanting to put on the page is what he finds in the poem. What he finds in the poem is also something that he's imagined into the poem. Um, and I'm very, you know, uh, and endlessly puzzled by, really, the um, difficulty of distinguishing or the way between or the way in which the activity of discovery verges into an activity of new, new creation. Um, the third thing that, that's feeding into what I have to say um, is the experience of moving professionally from you know, functioning mainly in an English literature context and indeed a, a Victorian studies context um, into uh, a comparative literature context. And the difference then is that whereas um, the, 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 what, what's different there is that instead of, you know, about Dickens or something, um, 
people will be sharing critical views about the text that it's assumed that everyone has knowledge of in common. And so what happens in that scenario is there's a, there's a tension between the critical inference and the kind of shared interpretive uh, you know, awareness of the other people in the room. But typically in a comparative literature, comparative critical context, you're listening to people talking about texts that you don't know. Um, and it seems to me that a crucial uh, you know, issue there um, is the extra onus that's placed on criticism in that context to do justice to the particularity of the text that's being talked about. Um, and it seems to me, and this is something in the, in the kind of larger sort of program that this, this is part of, I've been, you know, I hope we'll carry on thinking about, which is to say that it seems to me that what ought to happen is that criticism ought to work harder to adopt some of the aesthetic qualities of the text that it's describing, to bring into the room or bring onto the critical page the, you know, the particularity, the aesthetic charge, the imaginative distinctiveness of the texts that are being discussed. Um, and I think that quite rarely happens, in fact, in my experience of you know, being, a, being a conferences and reading work in this area has, has too often been that the text that I know nothing about is made over into standard issue critical prose, you know, kind of flat pack, you get a flat pack version of the text that's being talked about. And that flat pack version then becomes the entity that the critical argument is made about. Um, and so that, I think that's a big problem for comparative literature in general, and that's sort of fed into um, a general anxiety that I, that I have about what the, the kind of thing Andrew was you know, illustrating so nicely in the text you were talking about, which is to say the challenge of critical writing mm-hmm. to face up to and do justice to the particularity of the creative writing that it's trying to, trying to kind of grasp and, um, and, and sort of talk about. Um, <coughs> I mean, we're, we're all, um, I suppose we all have our kind of different senses of the institutional pressures that we're, we're, we're under, and there are obvious reasons why those institutional pressures are there, but I just wanted as an example of them. Oh yeah, the bar quotation at the bottom of the first page was as a, a sort of, I would have thought that the crisis of commentary that bar you know, announced 50 years ago would be flourishing in the realm of comparative literature, and it seems to me that it's not as much as it, as it might be. Um, going back to, to, to our institutional pressure, pressures, what there is over the page is the, the English faculty's criteria for, for good critical work by undergraduates. Um, um, what's, um, what's, <laughs> Should we be nervous here? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> and, and, and what's striking about it, I mean, it's come, you know, it's, it's come out of the institution, um, and so it's, uh, it's a kind of crystallisation of widely circulating sort of anxieties and attitudes, I suppose, isn't it? But what's striking about it is that the text is is, is the objectivity that it aspires to. A text is presented as an object of analysis. Students are expected to amass something called knowledge about it and build arguments about it. Style, critical style, is conceived as a delivery mechanism. It's expected to be clear and fluent. Those are the criteria that characterise good, good style. And oh, there is the word elegant in there as well. But um, you know, words that are not there um, are words like perceptive or receptive or responsive or imaginative, or heaven forbid, inventive. Um, and a sort of thought about style that's not there um, is the thought that style, can, critical style can do the kind of thing that Andrew's been describing, which is to say that critical style can be worked in order to register something, in order to use its own creative linguistic resources to convey something about, you know, to apprehend and convey something about the text, um, the text that it's that it's describing. Um, so, so that's um, that's that. Um, so, that's a sort of instance of 
a kind of regime of, of, of criticism that, that, you know, that exists uh, and, is, and is quite widespread. Um, and to me, I suppose the, the pressure points, the things I, I feel ought to be thought about more, um, are, are, are three. One is um, to do with valuing, um, which is to say valuation is, is implicit in everything, and yet at the same time, explicitly making an argument about value is something that it seems hard, I certainly feel it hard to do, that it seems to be hard for us to do, and all sorts of reasons for that, but nevertheless, it's something that I think has to be thought about. Um, this talk is a kind of exploratory and opening up questions kind of talk rather than a performative kind of talk. Um, the other thing is affect, um, and it's true that there's been you know, famously an affective turn in the humanities over the last 10 years, um, but I still think there's a sort of, I personally still feel, and I still think there is sort of work to be done in allowing affect, because, okay, so, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a danger about what you create then, it's something called affect studies or something like that. Um, which is which is different from criticism as it is ordinarily practiced, um, and I still think there are arguments to be made and work to be done to allow kind of perception of affect into the texture of, of critical prose. Um, but the thing that I'm I'm most I'm most sort of interested in, I suppose, um, is this thing of tasking critical writing to evoke the particular imaginative charge of the text that it, it discusses, and this can be by you know, the techniques of close reading that are familiar to us, but also other imaginative strategies that one could, one could envisage. Um, and this whole question about uh, justifying that kind of imaginative discovery, um, and indeed this fault line of worrying about where the enterprise of imaginative discovery becomes self-indulgent or becomes simply kind of personal invention for the sake of it. Um, now, as a contrast to um, the, uh, the marking criteria, um, let's, I just want briefly to look at the famous Keats poem that's the next thing um, on the handout on first looking to Chapman's poem. Um, and not discounting all the differences between us and Keats, you know, that we're probably not, m most probably not great poets, and that we are um, doomed, I mean, blessed to, to, to work in an academic institutional environment. I just wondered if we could what the aspects of whether there are aspects of the writing here that we can allow ourselves to be kind of prompted and goaded by um, in our own critical writing. And you know, there's a bonus obviously a vast amount that one might say. One aspect of course is that it uh, recounts a personal uh, narrative, it, it recounts a personal encounter. Um, but this is, you know, there's there are lots of bits of criticism that that, that do this and actually the um, the essay by Isabel Armstrong that's the first that I, that's there on the handout somewhere is quite a, is a lovely example actually of using um, a, a, a sort of diary form to critically create what probably create a critical end uh, so, I, so I won't say much about that um, another thing about it is that it's, it's form is, I'm interested in is how it's form matters um, which is to say that it embodies a decision to write in a form and so that it, it announces pay attention to the form. And it asks readers to wonder how its form relates to the form of the writing that it describes. Now Chapman's Homer rhymes, Chapman brings rhyme to Homer, and this rhymes um, too. It's, it's rising to a similar challenge. It's saying, I'm in language in the same way that the text I'm talking about is in language. But it also sort of positions itself 
in a significant continuity with and yet distance, because obviously a sonnet is quite different from an epic. Um, so it's got this kind of, uh, gesture, of uh, gesture of humility, um, a gesture of saying, making visible a, um, imaginative allegiances and a tradition that it's belonging to, and, and turning that tradition of the sonnet. And sort of just lifting that, making that visible um, in, in its establishing a relationship, therefore, between its own formal identity and the, and the text that it's a, a, a critical imaginative response to. And then the other thing, which is, which is kind of obvious, is that it uses the imagination, it deploys the imagination um, to characterise the work that it's talking about and to express um, the response to it. So that what you've got in the first eight lines is a, an allegory reading text that are, that are not Chapman's Homer. And then you get a shift from that allegory to this the, the, the strangeness of simile, then felt I like. Um, and then you've got this lovely thing in the Sestet, the, the, the similes that he uses for, to, dis, to, to express the, the encounter with Homer are strangely both like and unlike um, uh, scenes that are, are important in the Iliad, which is to say there are great scenes in the Iliad of looking out over the sea, of um, Zeus being on a mountain top looking out over the action, um, of there's a very famous uh, scene of uh, fires being like stars. There's a lovely bit actually. I mean, different people reading the poem attach it to different, or, or attach it to different bits of home, all sort of with, with scholarly confidence. So yes, this derives from this. But it seems to me that what's rather the case is there's a kind of flowing in of imaginative response into the poem. Um, there's a lovely bit in book one. Chapman calls the gods by the names of you know by the names of planets. So so Zeus becomes Jupiter. Um, and there's a lovely bit in, in book one when Thetis goes off to see Jupiter, and to me that's something that's kind of prompted the thing about the new planet um, swimming into the ken. The other thing about it is that these similes are a bit like epic similes. You know, a feature of the Iliad is it's the point of the great epic similes, and these are as much like epic similes as you can get while still being in the little room of the sonnet. Um, now, what's going on here, um, I think... <coughs> You know, I'm not suggesting that all criticism of, of poetry needs to be in it needs to rhyme, um, and I'm not suggesting that any that all kind of criticism of similes needs to needs to be in similes. Um, but what I'm interested in, and what I think we can be sort of goaded by or prompted by, is this heuristic, this kind of opening up um, use of the imagination and use of form, which is to say that. Um, the recognition that an interpretive encounter involves imagination and feeling, and therefore the conviction that to you know, convey that discovery involves using the imagination and using linguistic form, and that to understand that discovery, the reader reading the critical act, to understand that discovery involves their imagination and sensitivity to language being awakened too. So imagine that it wasn't written like this. Imagine that it was written in our standard critical prose and it said, for instance, what's really good about Chapman by contrast with Pope is that he uses the strength of monosyllables instead of saying, till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. And that instead of saying what I was saying a moment ago about similes and views, it said there's something really imaginatively involving about Homer's use of views over, over the scenery. That would be fine, that's something you can grasp rationally. But what's different is that you know, writing, speak out loud and bold, you know, shows, you, you know, shows you and asks you to think about and understand what it is about monosyllables that's good. Um, and so there's a way in which, so what this writing is doing is 
as it were, you know, it is expressing critical observations, but it's expressing critical observations in a way that conveys um, imaginatively and sort of feelingly um, what, what matters about them, why they matter. Okay. Now, uh, moving on from this, um, I could point to, so that's obviously a classic example of creative criticism, and there's a whole, you know, there's quite a lot actually of recent work um, that I, could, that I could point to that's trying to do um, a similar, <coughs> similar sort of thing. Some bits of it, obviously, I like, I like more than others. And actually, quite interestingly, the instances that I most like tend to be instances of creative criticism that are also translations. So things like Michael Longley's versions from Homer or Lowe's Homer or the translations from the classics by, by Anne Carson. Um, I think the danger... Okay, so there's a, there's, there's a danger here with this kind of work, which is to say that there's a sense in which this is a kind of response or this is a kind of writing that you need to be really good in order to do. You know, you need to be a creative writer in order to engage in this kind of creative criticism work, or at least that's a possible objection to it. And I think something I tend not to like about the kinds of creative criticism that, um, that I don't like um, is, is a sort of self is a kind of self-indulgence, which is to say a loss of awareness of that tension between or uh, a loss of worry about the degree to which what's happening is a, is a discovery and the degree to which what's happening is just something being made up. Um, so what I want to offer as I, as I move towards a, a, a conclusion um, is some quite modest examples of creative criticism. So rather than the instances of... Of creative criticism, we just say, wow, that's so creative. Um, instances of creative criticism that are more like actually the kind of writing that Andrew was talking about. Um, the first is from um, Ali Smith's lovely recent book, um, Artful, that was given as performances originally as performances um, at St Anne's over the road and is now, and is now a book. Um, and I won't say very much about that except to say that it's a sequence of quotations that is about sequence and it's a very hurried piece of writing. Uh, that is about hurry. So what it's doing is that it's entering into the topic of its uh, analysis, performing it, and so therefore it's kind of making itself vulnerable, really. It's about <coughs> time passing, it's about hurry, and because it is itself hurried, it introduces an aspect of consideration, it shows itself to be at risk in the way that it's writing about it. It says, I'm really excited by what I'm writing about, here's what emerges from my assignment, um, but also it allows you to think, well, this is a rather excited piece of writing. It could be measured in different ways. So, so it positions itself on that. Um, the other one that I just want to say a teensy bit more about um, is this famous sentence by Emerson um, about a line. It's just right at the beginning of Seven Types of Ambiguity. Um, and it's about this line from Shakespeare's on it, Bare Ruined Choirs, where Lake the Sweet Birds sang. And... <coughs> He's just been saying I'm going to launch into an analysis of this line. And what happens is you get this enormous, just wonderfully imaginative and inventive sentence that gives lots of reasons why the comparison between the bare ruined choirs and trees um, holds. Um, and um, so setting out to analyse, it rises into something that's much more like um, poetic invention. And it's as though having by, you know, quoting it, by cutting it out of the poem, having sort of taken the dead line, deadened the line, um, Empson kind of revivifies it um, with, the, with, the, with the kind of spring, spring warmth of his, of his imagination, adding image 
to image to image to image in order to that, that, that are sort of budding, um, budding out of it. Now, I, I wanted to quote this line because um, Demand does a critique of it. Um, in which he thinks that the, the <coughs> tension I've been talking about between discovery and invention is, is something that Emerson didn't really mean to be there. And Demand thinks that he kind of catches Emerson out, which is to say that he thinks that Emerson has set out to discover what's really there in the line, but he's shown that, in fact, the line opens onto an infinity of, of possible experiences. Um, and that's because Demand has has this really strange you know, this is, this is a, a bit cursory in general, I, I admit it, but it has this sort of strange sense that um, criticism should really just say again what is there in the text and that criticism's inevitable failure to do that constitutes a fault and therefore um, every reading is a misreading and therefore the critic is blind and releases a, an insight that, that emerges because of the, the, the critic's blindness um, but if you recognise instead of that um, that any interpretation, if you recognise instead of that that Empson's reaction um, is, a, is a performance, um, that it stages the um, uncertain boundary, that is in the uncertain boundary between discovery and new creativity, um, then this whole language of misreading and faultiness just doesn't, doesn't seem relevant any, anymore because it's not a relevant language because there's no way it could be different. Um, and instead, what this very enthusiastic sentence of Emerson's does is kind of, it's a bit, it's a bit like what, what you were saying, only, only a more vulnerable instance of it in a way. Yeah. So that the way Andrew was saying that what the criticism does is sort of continues the work of the poem. I think what this sentence does is, you know, in, enthusiastically discovers, responds to, builds meanings out of, cascades meanings out of the poem, and then recognises the risk. The risk is there on the page. The risk is there in the way that the sentence just goes, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and more and more and more. Yeah. Um, recognises the risk that what's happening is that the, the reader's imagination is sort of being, being uh, prompted to, to, to new stuff, to imagine new stuff. Um, and that what that leaves for the, for the reader then, what that is part of, um, is an enterprise of, you know, what that, what that recognises is that reading is an enterprise of collaborative imagining. And what that gives to the reader is a goad to more collaborative imagining um, of, of each reader's go to more collaborative imagining of their own. Now, I'm, I'm much worse at keeping to time than Andrew is, so I, I, I'm, I'm going to stop. But what I, the other thing I wanted to say is that the last two quotations on the sheet are from theoretical discussions that are roughly in harmony with the kind of thing that I've been saying. But I just want to say only roughly in harmony because they're both very good books and they're better books than I've ever written. But what disappoints me about them is that because they remain in the arena of theoretical statement almost entirely, they make claims for what the reaction to literary text should be like, is like. But they don't instantiate that in their own writing. So there's a kind of lack of, you know, uh, in, 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 in the Attridge book, which is all about you know, singularity and particularity, there isn't a registering of singularity, I feel, um, in, the, in, in the texture of his writing. So there's a sort of, there's a kind of creation of a space, really, that it seems to me that it takes the kind of criticism that I've been talking about. Well, the, the fact of that space um, is why creative criticism is important, and indeed the challenge of that space is, is what creative criticism should fill. Right. Thank you.